Uh, well, welcome. Glad to have you here again today. It's been quite a week, right? I mean, the, the snow around here is crazy. Uh, but last week it was also kind of a, a unique week for me. I was back in Calgary. And when I was in Calgary, it was like minus 33 degrees Celsius for like three or four days in a row. So, so actually, this doesn't seem uh, too bad to me. Uh, but I was back in Calgary for the memorial service for my dad. Uh, he died a little bit. He died at age 80, so it wasn't entirely unexpected, but, but a little bit of a surprise. Uh, he died in his sleep, um, but, uh, but he loved Jesus. He was far from perfect, uh, and, um, and yet he, he followed Jesus as best he could. I miss him a lot, sort of sad, and yet at the same time there was no sting uh, because because he's following Christ, and I'm following Christ, and we will see one another again. And so thank you uh, for your prayers for me and for my family. Thank you for your many kind words of encouragement and just care for us. Thank you for those of you who uh, brought food to our place. Uh, we, just, we just feel so loved and cared for uh, by you, and we just thank God uh, that he has given us the privilege uh, to be part of this church. So thank you so much. Uh, this week, we are back into... Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're not familiar with Ecclesiastes, it's this tiny little book right in the middle of the Old Testament. And it describes this sort of grand experiment that, that King Solomon undertook. And he undertook to, to kind of take this experiment into what is the meaning of life. And the way that he wanted to do it is to try out all the things that we think will give us meaning and fulfillment and to take them to their fullest extent so that he could find out what it's all about. And uh, we found when we started at the very opening verses of this book that he gives us his conclusion at the beginning. He says this is meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. By that, he doesn't mean that life has no meaning. Rather, the word that he uses, the Hebrew word, is the word hevel, which has this idea of smoke or, or vapor. In other words, what he's saying is that the life can, you know, you could chase something so hard and you can see it like you can see vapor or smoke. But when you finally think that you grasp it in your hands, when you open your hands, it's gone. In fact, he says more than that, life is sort of this enigma, this mystery that, that we uh, wrestle with. And, and so he sets out to explore what life is all about. And in the process, he begins to deconstruct two big ideas that are actually very prevalent in our world uh, today. One is secularism, the idea that you can find fulfillment apart from God. He's going to try it out and see if it's possible. And then secondly, the other one that he's going to deconstruct is the, the myth of religious fulfillment. The idea that is sometimes rampant among Christians that, that if we follow after God, if we're obedient to what he tells us to, that therefore he owes us a nice, easy, beautiful life. And instead, what Solomon is going to do, he's going to deconstruct those two ideas and instead help us to look at life as it actually is. Without any sentimentality, without being dishonest, without being trite. He's going to be, this is what life is really like. So today we come to chapter three of, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it is one of the most famous chapters in, in this book. And it begins this way. Solomon writes, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. 
A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. Solomon starts by simply pointing out the fact that everything in this life has its time. Everything. And Here's what he doesn't say in these verses, but is utterly implicit in what he writes. And that's this. You don't get to pick those times. It's God who chooses each of those times. In other words, he's saying this. God ordains all of the things of life. In other words, he is sovereign over it all. And to make his point, he begins with the most fundamental aspects of life. When you are born and when you die. And he points out, look, you didn't get to pick when you were born. You had no say in it whatsoever. And for the most part, you have no say in when you die. God decides that. He ordains that. I was uh, uh, talking with my aunt uh, this past week. She was uh, out from Ontario. And she told me about an incident that happened in her part of the country. She said uh, that there was three young guys in their 30s that were out golfing uh, one day. And, and they no one had said anything. There was no weather warnings. And, and they were struck by lightning, all three of them. And she said one of them was instantly killed by the lightning. The second one uh, was injured so severely that they got him to the hospital, but he died in the hospital. But they were able to use his organs. Uh, he, was, he donated his organs so that others could find life. And the third of those three men, he simply walked away. Nothing happened. And, and the... the this is, this is the kind of thing that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes. It says it's, it's hevel, it's, it's meaningless, it's vapor. It's, a, it's an enigma, a mystery. How, how can it be that lightning strikes and one guy is dead and one guy is able to give his life so that others might live, live and the other guy simply walks away? Solomon says it's been ordained by God. God decides when each of us is born, and he determines when each of us die, and we really have no say in it at all. But it, what Solomon is saying here is actually much broader than that. You see, Solomon is using a literary device known as a merism. That's when you use two words that describe extreme opposites of a spectrum with the intention of meaning everything in between as well. So, for example, when you got married, if you got married, uh, if you gave your vows for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, that's a merism, right? I mean, you're, you're saying that you're going to be faithful not just when it's really good and not just when it's really hard, but everything in between. You can be faithful in your marriage when it's just average. You can be faithful in your marriage when it's kind of boring, you're going to be faithful in your marriage when it's not, not just exciting or not just scary and you're up against it together. You're going to be faithful through it all. Richer and poor. I mean, you're going to be faithful not only if you're rich, not only if you're poor, but you're going to be faithful as middle class people, right? I mean, that's what you're saying. It's a merism. Jesus uses this same type of literary device when he says in the book of Revelations, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He doesn't mean that he's not anything in between. He means he is all of it. And that's what Solomon is saying here when he says that, that, uh, that there's a time that God ordains a time to be born and a time to die. 
He says, not only that, but God ordains everything in your life that happens in between. God is sovereign over all of life and all aspects of life. He goes on to say, there's a time to plant and a time to uproot. I mean, you could go, you could go outside today if you want. You could go to a farmer's field and say, I want to plant wheat today. You could do it, but that wheat isn't going to grow because God has ordained there are certain times to plant and there are certain times to harvest. And you have no say over that. God has ordained that. And he says there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, that doesn't mean that God is ordering anyone to kill anyone. But Solomon is saying is this, when it happens, it is ordained by God. And when there is healing in your life, in your, in your body, that was also ordained by God. He says there's a time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to just pack it in. To, to, to leave something behind, to simply let it go. And there's other times where it's time to lay foundations, to dig deep, to build something up. But that is also something that God ordains in our lives. There's a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. The big events in your life, the weddings and the funerals, the promotions and the layoffs, all of those things also fall under the sovereign hand of God. But even the mundane things in your life fall under the sovereign hand of God. There's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. You know, I worked uh, on a farm once for two weeks. Not long, but I loved it. Uh, and, uh, but one, one day, our job was to go out into the field and to pick rocks because apparently wheat doesn't grow real good where there's a bunch of rocks. And so we went out and we did back-breaking labor for a day in the hot sun, just picking all these rocks and getting them out of the field. That's what Solomon's talking about. In that day, that's what farmers did all the time. They gathered rocks. And sometimes they built things with rocks, and if it didn't work, they would throw them away. The point being that this, even the mundane things in your life are ordained by God. Here's what he goes on to say, and he goes on to say this. He says, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to, 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 throw, to keep and a time to throw away. There's times where you should keep things, but there's times when you should throw things away. I mean, if I, were, if I were to interpret this in our world, I would say, there's a time to put up the Christmas tree. Not too soon, but there's also a time to take it down, right? I mean, I'm not sure it's what he meant, but I think it's a good, good point. There's a time to tear, time to mend, time to be silent. It's a good reminder for us. Sometimes it's good to just close our mouths, be quiet, but also a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. God is sovereign over it all. Now, of course, you can run against what he has ordained, you can decide that you're an individual with all sorts of rights and freedoms and you're going to do what you want to do when you want to do it. You can do that if you want. And it might seem like you're getting what you want, but in the end, you won't ultimately be successful because these things are out of your control. They're ordained by God. He is the one who is sovereign over it all. See, this is the point that Solomon is driving, driving home and that's this. God is sovereign over every aspect of your life. 
Now, that can have disturbing implications for you depending on how you look at it. I mean, if you hold a secular worldview that there is no God, that this life and all that happens is just the result of some weird fluke before the universe was born, some big bang, therefore there's no real meaning, direction, purpose to this life, it's just this weird thing that happens, then you can, of course, congratulate yourself when good things happen in your life. They are the result of your hard work, your great foresight, but also means that when bad things happen in your life, you have no one to blame but yourself. It's because of your own foolishness and your own stupidity. And if bad things happen to you that are outside of your control, there is no, no reason for that to happen in your life. It's just bad, dumb luck. It's just the, the, the gears of evolution slowly grinding you up and spitting you out. I'm always surprised at how quickly those who believe that there is no God suddenly turn and shake their fist in his face when somehow something outside of their control that's bad happens to them. But if you don't believe in a sovereign God, you can't do that. There is no rhyme or reason to anything that happens, good or bad, in your life. Likewise, if you're a Christian who holds to the myth of religious fulfillment, that it's God's job to make your life happy and easy, then the implication of God's sovereignty in your life is also disturbing because if he is sovereign and if he is good, then why would he allow hard things and bad things to happen in your life? The question that people ask then is, if God is sovereign and he allows this, then is he really a God worth following after? That's why the very next question that the Solomon asks is this. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He says this, if God is sovereign, if he's in control of every aspect of our lives, both the good and the bad, both the, good, the hard and the easy, then what's the point of it all? Why toil? Why work hard? It seems like a heavy burden that God has laid on us, doesn't it? But not if you know God. Not if you understand his character. Not, not if you genuinely trust him. A couple of weeks before uh, Christmas, my dad gave me a book. It was written by my grandfather. And it was titled simply, What I Have Seen and Heard and Experienced. It wasn't meant for broad distribution. It was really meant just for my folks and my uncles and aunts and for the grandchildren. And it was a retelling of my grandfather's life. And uh, he writes that, in, uh, uh, he, uh, that he was born in 1905 into a Mennonite village uh, in the southern part of Ukraine. Actually, the part of Ukraine that right now the, the, the Ukrainian and the Russian armies are fighting over. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, this term Mennonite, Mennonite was a sort of an ethnic group of German-speaking people that had faith in God, that had lived in these villages in the southern part of Ukraine. And he said in 1914... In 1914, when he was just a boy, his father was one of the leading farmers in that part of the country. He was progressive, he was a natural leader, and he was very wealthy. Their farm was incredibly successful. But he said that 1914, and they loved God, of course. They followed after God. He said in 1914, World War I broke out. And because they were 
Mennonites, an identifiable minority, because they spoke German and the war was against Germany, and because they were pacifists, in other words, they believed that God didn't want them to, to fight in wars, they immediately fell under all kinds of suspicion from the people around them, from the Russians living in those regions. And he said that because that World War I was fought mostly before they had mechanized weapons, that the government would come to their villages and take away all of their horses because they needed them at the front lines, which meant that they didn't have what they needed to plow the land. And suddenly they went from being fairly well off to suddenly not very well off. He says then in 1917, the, the Russian Revolution happened and the communists took over control of, of, uh, of, of Russia and the Ukraine and the German army pulled back from the Ukraine. But the Russian government didn't move in quick enough and so anarchy came in the land. And he said in their villages, there would be these hordes of Russian bandits that would descend upon their villages. And they would beat the men, sometimes kill them. They would burst into their homes, demand that the women make them a breakfast or lunch or whatever meal they wanted. They would sit down and eat the meal and then they would grab the women, take them in the back and rape them. He said that went on for months and months until the white army rose up. The white army was an army that was raised up to fight against the red army, which is the communist army. And he said in their village, he said in some mornings, the white army would occupy the village. And by lunchtime, the red army would be occupying their village. And by evening, the white army would be reoccupying their village. And they would spend their day hidden behind a thick brick wall by the stove in the middle of their house while, while bullets whizzed overhead. And then he wrote that by 1920, the white army had been defeated, but, but in 1920 and 1921, a massive famine struck that part of the Ukraine. He said, I, I mean, I won't tell you the things he described, the, the kind of deaths that he saw as a young man. But he said that they became so desperately poor that his parents gave him and his siblings knitting needles to go to the barn to pick out the grains of uh, little grains of wheat from between the boards in the barn so that they could cook that, so that they would at least have a little something to eat. And then he said, finally, in 1923 or 24, after a decade of violence and war and famine, things began to settle down and go back to normal. And in 1925, while he was still just a, a man of 20 years old, his father died of tuberculosis. And he, along with his stepmother, because his, his actual mother had died before, he, along with his stepmother, became the head of a family with seven younger siblings. Now, here's the question. Where is the sovereignty of God in that kind of a story? I mean, where is the goodness of God towards the people who put their faith in him, who refuse to do violence against others, who continue to trust him, and yet all these bad, bad, bad things happen? And yet it's fascinating if you read his story. It's interspersed with comments about the goodness and the grace of God and how they prayed and they trusted God in his sovereignty. Because to fail to trust God was to have all of these things have random, no meaning whatsoever, just terrible, terrible, terrible things that happened in their life. 
They held firmly to the sovereignty of God. Solomon says, what does a worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. But then, then this is what he says next. In verse 11, he says this. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. The sovereign God. The God who ordains everything that happens in your life who sets a time for everything, both the good things and the bad things, that God, Solomon says, has made everything beautiful in its time. The things in your life that appear random, the times when it seems like your life is out of control, if you feel that God has abandoned you or that he simply is unable to, to do anything, that he's powerless in your situation, if you believe that he isn't really sovereign because if he was, he would never allow this or that thing to happen in your life. It's not true. He makes all things beautiful. But as a God who is good and sovereign over all things, just like everything else, there is a time that he chooses to do that in your life. You know, before 1914, my grandfather and his family were so well off. They were so prosperous that they that, that had such hard things not happened in their lives, they would have never contemplated leaving the Ukraine. It was only in 1926, after war and bandits and a civil war and a famine and the death of his father, that their family was willing to sell their gorgeous, beautiful farm and leave the people that they knew and loved so well, and that they had weathered such hardship with, to come to a land that was halfway across the world, to a land where everyone spoke a language that they didn't know, to a province where it snows like this all the time, and where the temperature drops to minus 30 degrees in the middle of winter. I mean, it was only because of God's sovereign hand in some of the hardest things in their life that they immigrated to Canada. And while their life was not easy when they got here, they came to a country where there was democracy and freedom of belief and where you could build a life of safety and of prosperity. And all that they had endured under the sovereign hand of God led them to this place. And all of those hard things were nothing compared to what happened to those who were left behind in Ukraine in the 1930s after they had left. It was God's grace. It was God's sovereign hand at work in their lives so that they and my parents and my generation and my children and my children's children could grow and live in this land with all of the freedom and prosperity that we enjoy here. God never abandoned my grandfather and his family, even in the darkest days. Things were never out of God's control. He makes all things beautiful in his See, this is called the providence of God. So Solomon is pointing out here that says, because God is sovereign, is sovereign, his sovereignty becomes his providence. Now, those are very similar, but they're different. The, the sovereignty of God means God's absolute rule and reign over all of creation. But providence has a deeper, a broader meaning than that. The word providence comes from the root word. You can hear it from the word to provide. In other words, the sovereign God of all creation isn't just sitting in heaven playing with your life and mine as some sort of, you know, fun thing to see what he can do. No, no, no. He's a good God 
who loves us so deeply that has sent his own son to suffer and die for our sins. So do you think he's just messing with your life and playing with it? No, no, no. His sovereign hand at work in your life is his provision, his care for you. His way of working things, even through the hard things in your life, to make them come to a place where they are beautiful. But it's all in his time and according to his good plans and purposes. Which means things are not out of control in your life. It means that there aren't patches or even great swaths of your life that are simply deserts that have no value. God's turning those into good things in his time. It means that even the hardest experiences of your life, God is at work. So be patient. Trust him. He makes all things beautiful in their time. And and then Solomon adds another line that is also kind of famous because it's so insightful. Here's what he says next. He says this. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now Solomon explains that when it comes to the sovereignty of God, and his providence in our lives. We only get a small picture, just a glimpse of of the big picture of what God is doing. He he, he says, look, we we know there's a big picture out there that God is at work at, but it's like we're these nearsighted people that are just right up close to this vast tapestry, and we're just kind of inching our way along it, and and we kind of get a glimpse of where it's going, but all we can see right now and right here is this intricate work, and we know it's good, and God is at work, but we can't quite catch the picture. It's only God who steps back far enough that he can see the plans from beginning to end. Again, I was telling a friend of mine about this story. I'm sorry for so much history, but it it just shows so well this this truth about who God is. I was telling my friend who's also of Mennonite background about this story and she said that she had a similar story about her family who were also Mennonites except for that they, they couldn't escape Ukraine before Stalin closed the borders. Instead, her grandparents were sent by Stalin to Siberia. She said one night in the dead of winter in a dark night in the middle of Siberia, her grandfather escaped across a frozen river with his family from Siberia into Mongolia. And from Mongolia, they went to China. And from China, they immigrated to Paraguay, which is a small country in South America. And, and here's what her dad told her. Her dad said that when the Mennonites were first invited as an ethnic group, as a religious group to come from Germany where they lived, to move to southern Ukraine where there was good farm. They were good farmers. They were invited by Catherine the Great. She was a czar who ruled over Russia in the 1700s. And she said, well, I want you to come, but you must promise me that you will keep your faith to yourself. That you will not share the message of the gospel anywhere. And my friend's dad said that the Mennonites agreed to that because they wanted safety and they wanted peace. And he said they were wrong to do that. That Jesus calls his disciples, no matter where they are, to share the good news of the message of the gospel. But the Mennonites agreed that they would no longer do that. And so they became known as the quiet in the land. They just kept to themselves. Which meant that, that when World War I came and the Germans invaded because they built no relationships with the people around them, 
because they never shared the gospel with the people around them, that they were immediately suspect, that they were easily vilified. My grandmother, also a Mennonite, long background there, she said the exact same thing. She said we must never, we meaning the Mennonites, must never ever again agree that we won't share our faith everywhere we go. You know, the same applies for us today. It's easy sometimes when the pressure of the culture is on us to simply enfold upon ourselves and just say, we'll just hang together. That's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to, to share our faith. And that's not only for the benefit of those who hear it, but it means that we develop relationships with people in our city who don't know Jesus. And they find out that we love our neighbors, that we're good parents, that, that we love our wives and our husbands. And, and it's not so easy then for the media to paint us a certain way or for the haters to vilify us because the people even if they don't come to faith, who know us. No, 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 no. I know those Christians. They're not like the ones that I hear about in the media. Now, sorry, sidetrack. Here's, here's where I'm going with all of this. My friend's father believed that the reason that God scattered the Mennonites around the world through such hardships that I've been telling you about is so that they would go back to sharing their faith. Her family and thousands of other families like hers and like mine scattered across the globe. And she said when her family and all of those Mennonites went to Paraguay, not only did they build a life for themselves there, but they started churches and they began ministries and they, they intentionally reached out to the people in their, in their cities and in their communities. And many came to faith in Christ and many others' lives were improved simply because of their ministry. It was God's plans and purposes. But those who were in the midst of the, the persecution, those who were experiencing the hardness, they couldn't see that. All they could see was right this here in front of them. And just a glimpse of what God was going to do through the generations to come. Don't worry if you only ever get a glimpse of what God might be doing through your life. He's put eternity in your heart. Your life and the things that are happening in your life are being woven into a much larger tapestry that only God himself sees the big, the beautiful picture. But as God sees it, it is so good. And he's working all things according to his plans and purposes. They will be beautiful in their time. Here's... Here's the point again that you need to see. God, because God is sovereign, his plans are eternal, even though your vision is nearsighted. So, if that's the case, if God is indeed sovereign over every aspect of your life, both the good and the bad, and he's writing your story into a much larger story, then what should you do? I mean, how should you live? Well, here's what Solomon says next. He says this, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. What should you do? You should be happy. You should do good. You should eat and drink and find satisfaction in whatever it is that God has put before you to do. That's what you should do if you believe in a good and a sovereign God. Sounds kind of nice, right? Takes the pressure off, doesn't it? I mean, if you don't believe in a sovereign God, then it's all on you. There's a lot of pressure there. 
And if you believe that, that, that God should treat you like a princess, make sure your life is just perfect all the time and nothing, that means a lot of drama in your life. But if you just trust in a good and a sovereign God, then you can kick back and relax and enjoy so many things in life. See, this is one of the themes that runs through Ecclesiastes. We'll come across it again. You know, as human beings, we tend to take life under the sun both too seriously and not seriously enough. We take the things that are out of our control much more seriously than we should. We toil so hard to attain things that become smoke and mist when we finally get our hands on them. And we don't take seriously enough the good things that God puts in our life, the ordinary events of life, a quiet evening at home with our family, the small joys that come from time to time in a marriage, the, the laughter of a great joke, the, the pleasure of a great conversation with good friends. If God is sovereign, you should soak those things up and worry less about those other things that ultimately are out of your control anyway. This past Christmas, I, uh, I caught up with one of my cousins that I hadn't seen in a long time. He's about my age. He told me that he had worked 26 years for the same company. It was a high-pressure job. It was high finance. He literally uh, managed and, and sold and traded hundreds of millions of dollars in stocks and bonds. And he said after 26 years, he was called into the office and let go. And not, not because he wasn't doing a great job, but because they could hire a young man to do the same job for half the price. I said, how, how did you feel about that? And he said, it hurt a lot. But then he said he took the next year off. Apparently, you get a pretty good severance when you leave that kind of a job. And he said it changed his life. He spent time with the kids that he wasn't able to do before. He rested. He spent more time with his wife. He came to realize how toxic his workplace had been. And after a year, he was invited into a new job. But he came with a different perspective. He wasn't trying to climb the ladder so much. Instead, he was enjoying the things that life right in front of him. He was trusting God. And he's, he said life became richer, not financially richer, although he's still doing just fine. Became much more richer in the, in the important things of life. Look, if you truly believe and trust in the sovereignty of your and providence of God in your life and relax and enjoy and get serious about the important things of life and stop being so serious about the things you don't have any control over anyway. Here's how Solomon ends this last section of this book. Uh, uh, sorry, the last part of this section in his book. Verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Solomon says, I thought about this a lot. I've watched and I've heard and I've experienced life and I've tested already parts of it more than most of us will ever have the chance to test. And here's the conclusion that he comes to. God is going to do what he's going to do, and you can't do anything about it. I mean, you can complain if you want. 
You can rage if you want. I mean, you could try to ignore it. You, you can spit into the wind if you think that's going to help. But it isn't going to change what God is going to do. Because what God does endures forever. You know, we have been swimming so long in our culture, in the waters of expressive individualism, that we have come to think either consciously or subconsciously that we are really the center of our universe the captain of our souls, the guiding light in our lives. And if only we work hard enough, if only we're smart enough, if only we have enough education, if only we make the right kinds of decisions that we can bend the whole world, or at least our world, to go exactly where we want it to go. And we can control the destiny of our lives. But Solomon says that's just foolishness. That's simply not the reality of how this life works. Which should cause us then to stop and remember who is in control of this life. Who it is that we are dealing with. He is not some fat, jolly, cosmic Santa Claus sitting in the sky just waiting to pour out gifts on you whenever you want. No, he is the sovereign creator of the universe, the one who ordains every day of your life from the day of your birth until the day of your death. So we should pay attention. In fact, if you understand who you're talking about, it should cause you to fear God. Not in some kind of cowering way like a, like a frightened child does of a parent that is in a rage and out of control. That's, that's not what the Bible means when it talks about fearing God. Instead, it means you should walk with God with a sense of awe and reverence, remembering who he is and remembering who you are. It means walking with God with a deep sense of trust, but also of gratitude for who he is and what he's done in the world. It means the kind of relationship that a, uh, that a son or a daughter has with a father whom they deeply admire, but also incredibly trust. See, that's what it means to fear God. And when we fear God, when we realize that he is good and sovereign and that his providence is at work in our lives and that he is making all things beautiful in their time and that what he is doing is part of something much greater than we will ever be able to grasp, which causes us to humble ourselves and to fear God and to trust him, no matter what's happening in our lives. And it should cause us to worship him, to lift our voices to him, to acknowledge his power and his goodness and his sovereignty in our life and to follow him wherever he leads us. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, God, what an awesome thing try to wrap our minds around your sovereignty in our lives, your sovereignty in this world. God, even though you put eternity in our hearts, we struggle sometimes to wrap our heads around how you work it all together, how you're doing it all. And yet, God, we trust that because you are good, because you are who you are, that you are indeed caring for it all, that your providence in our lives is at work that you're working out your plans and purposes. 
Father, may that truth sink so deeply into our hearts and in our lives that we just rest in it. God, that we can turn our focus from the things that wear us down to the things that are so important. Family and friends and and laughter and the, the simple joys of life because we trust you, God. Such a beautiful thing that you have given us. So God, help us with that. And God, lead us as we worship you. God, may we worship understanding your greatness and your goodness. And may our hearts just ring forth with the truth of who you are. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming and joining us today. I hope that you have been deeply encouraged as you consider the sovereignty of God in your life. I hope that as we walk through this book of Ecclesiastes, as we examine life as it really is, that it strengthens your faith in the good God who is in control of it all. Let me send you out with, uh, with this benediction to the one who was and is and will forever be, to the only wise God, be glory and majesty, power and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.